Well, welcome everybody today to the first Oxford Human Rights Hub webinar. Um, and I'm very, very pleased to, to be the moderator of this session. Um, my name is Leora Lazarus. I'm an associate professor here in the law faculty, specializing in human rights and security, and obviously involved with the Hub's work. I'll be moderating today's session and to facilitating your participation. My first uh, point I'd like to make is to welcome the 97 participants from all over the world that have registered in for this webinar. It's a wonderful feeling to be sitting here in a room watching medieval buildings, but to know that we're connected to people in all sorts of different parts of the world in human rights. We also have inside of this room um, a number of graduate students who have come to participate. So welcome to all of you who've actually come here with your feet. Um, now, today, the purpose of our uh, webinar will be to go through a, a presentation by our speaker. Um, now, Professor Sandra Fredman is Rose Professor of the Laws of the British Commonwealth and the USA here at Oxford University. She's written widely and published widely on anti-discrimination law, human rights law, and labor law, um, including the well-known monographs Human Rights Transformed, Discrimination Law, and Women in the Law. Professor Fredman, like myself, is South African and holds degrees from the University of Witwatersrand and the University of Oxford. She has acted as an expert advisor on equality law and labor legislation in the EU, Northern Ireland, the UK, India, South Africa, Canada, and the UN, and is a barrister practicing at Old Square Chambers. Professor Fredman founded the Oxford Human Rights Hub in 2012, of which she is the director. Now today, Professor Fredman will speak on the right to education. She will examine the nature of the right, its status in international law and policy, and its relationship with development agendas globally. Professor Fredman will also analyze jurisdictions around the world where courts have developed the right within their constitutional orders. Now, a webinar wouldn't be a webinar without participation from all of you, and it's my role to facilitate that participation with a number of very active assistants sitting here in the room with me. Unfortunately, you can't see us, but this is obviously an audio webinar, and you can see Professor Fredman's excellent PowerPoint slides. We, um, we, have, we, we would love your participation throughout the presentation, and there are three ways to do this. If you are looking, you will see that you can tweet us on at Oxford, uh, Oxford Human Rights Hub, O-X-H-R-8, hashtag right to education. You can message us on our Facebook page, Oxford Human Rights Hub blog, and you can email us at oxfordhumanrightshub at law.ox.ac.uk. Now, throughout the presentation, there will be three polls that will be part of Professor Fredman's presentation, and we would be very interested in your views on those particular polls, and as they come up, we will flag them for you. Professor Fredman will flag them for you. We'd also be very interested in any questions you have as the presentation is moving on, and we will have a question and answer session at the end of Professor Fredman's presentation, um, and then we will be able to take and field your questions that have been streamed through to us um, throughout the presentation. Now, Professor Fredman will speak for 45 minutes. The presentation 
um, the webinar itself is um, one hour long. So I will now hand over to Professor Fredman and welcome to all of you. Well, thank you very much, Leora, and welcome to everybody here in this, our very first Oxford Human Rights Hub webinar. Just to start with a roadmap of where we're going, I'm going to start by thinking about why a human right to education? Why shouldn't it just be a policy goal, as many people think education should be? Then I'm going to look briefly at the shape and content of the right, thinking of the right from three angles. Education as a freedom right, education as a social right, and education as a, an equality right. The focus is a legal one. We're going to be looking at international human rights law and jurisdictions where the right has been explored. Some of you will be familiar with these jurisdictions. We'll be looking at India, South Africa, where Leora and I both come from, as she said, New York, Colombia, and also the European Court of Human Rights. So let's begin with our first issue, which is contrasting education as a human right with education as a policy goal. And the best place to start is with the Millennium Development Goals. So, as many of you will know, in 2000, the world's leaders got together and, and agreed what they regarded as the most ambitious plan ever to address world poverty. And as part of that, they agreed eight development goals to be achieved by this year, by 2015. The second one of which was to achieve universal primary education. So here we get a paradigmatic approach, which is a policy goal, a development goal, says nothing about human rights at all. Now that we're in 2015 and we're thinking again about how much has been achieved and the way to go forward, the figures have, the, the figures have been emerging. Um, and you can see that the claim of the Millennium Development Goals is that we have reached 90% enrollment in primary education, but 58 million children remain out of school. And if we look a little bit more closely at these figures, we see that one in 10 children of primary school age are still out of school. The global out of school rate is stuck at 9% since 2007. And particularly worrying, more than four in 10 out of school children will never enter a classroom. And this raises the question then, of the value added, what value does a fundamental rights approach add to this policy approach? And this is where we're coming to your first opportunity to participate. Um, and we're going to take a general poll just as to see what are your preliminary views about the added value of, of education as a human right. So poll one, education has been identified as a development goal do you think there is added value in a human right to education? And we've got three alternatives. If you think yes, then send in your response 1A. As Leora said, you can tweet it, you can send it. Um, 
uh, or you can email us. If you think 1B, send no. And if you see, think 1C, say, if you think you don't know, say 1C. And while you're doing that, I'm going to take a poll of our live audience who are sitting here, uh, which will give people out there a chance to think about this and tweet in. So those of you who are sitting here who think, yes, there is added value in a human right to education, that's 1A. Can you put up your hands now? Those of you who think there isn't, can you put up your hands? And those of you who don't know. Great. Well, thank you very much. So while we're getting in your responses and you're, you're thinking about that, you might want to know a little bit more about the two sides of this question. And at this point, um, we can briefly compare the difference between uh, education as a development goal and education as a human right. This is not to say they're mutually exclusive, just whether there is added value. So of course the first thing is that a development goal is a political commitment, whereas human rights are legally binding. And part of the mission of this webcast is to think about what it means to be legally binding. Secondly, a development goal is about a transfer of aid. It's about, underlying that, charity. Whereas human rights pose individuals as rights bearers. And in this sense, individuals can assert their rights rather than just being beneficiaries. The Millennium Development Goals so far have focused on developing countries, whereas human rights are universal, and there are obviously Pop, there are obviously issues of poverty and issues of education in all countries. And fourthly, although there are many others, we could point to the way in which success is judged. So development goals tend to judge success quantitatively and aggregatively. We've seen that what started off as um, an aim of full primary education turned into measuring enrollment and of course enrollment doesn't necessarily mean you complete education whereas a human rights approach is about individual rights and that means that what we judge is not that we've achieved 90 percent but that nine that 58 million individual children have had their rights to education unfulfilled but behind this is of course the big question for right to education, whether a development goal or human rights. And that is about resources. So who decides what resources to give and how legally binding is the resource issue? So I think now we've had an opportunity to get a sense of what you think and we can, we can now relay it. Right, so we have from the um, people that have come in to respond to us, um, I can say that 75% chose 1A, which is yes, and 25% chose 1C, which is don't know. Um, I can also add to that that inside the room here, we had an almost 100% hands up for the yes, and I didn't see any hands up for anyone who didn't know. Was there one? One. Sorry, there was... I was mm -hmm. in line with you there. 
So we seem to have quite a healthy majority in favour of the right of education. So that's very interesting um, because <coughs> it might be interesting to you to know the trajectory from the Indian constitution from an idea of education primarily as policy to an idea of education as a fundamental right. And those of you in India will be familiar with the fact that initially the right to education found its place in the Indian Directive Principles of Social Policy, which are in the Constitution separated out from fundamental rights and which are not justiciable, not enforceable in courts. You can see from Article 45 of the Indian Constitution that the commitment is in terms of the state shall endeavour to provide free and compulsory education and also it should be within the limits of its economic capacity and development. And that meant that this was a policy aim rather than a, a, an aim which could be litigated in courts. But 10 years down the line and more than 10 years and even more than decades later when this promise hadn't materialized, um, there was a push towards regarding the right to education as a fundamental right. And the start of this was through litigation, through the court recasting the right to education, not just as a pious declaration in the directive principles, but reading the directive principles into fundamental rights. And most interestingly, reading it in to the fundamental right to life. And what the court said in the 1992 case of Mohini Jain, the right to life and the dignity of an individual cannot be assured unless it is accompanied by the right to education. So we see there, as most of you have thought, that um, there is a trend towards seeing education as a fundamental right. But given that there are several people who don't know, it's very important for us to continue to explore what is the nature of this right and what is the role of rights. But just to finish the Indian story, eventually this was accepted as a constitutional amendment and now it is explicitly in the Indian constitution that the state shall provide free and compulsory education to all children of the age of 6 to 14 years. This was a 2002 amendment. And this has been followed by statute, the Right of Children to Free and Compulsory Education Act 2009. So this brings us to the second section of, of the webinar, which is what are the role of human rights? And as I said, we can divide it up into different dimensions. The first is thinking about it as a freedom right. So many of us would not really think of education as um, a traditional putting the state in its traditional role of refraining from interfering with individual liberty. But actually when we think about it, education has often been used as a powerful propaganda machine. So there may be, and we'll see that there is, an important role of human rights in restraining the state. Secondly, as a social right, that is actual provision of buildings, furniture, teachers and the quality of education. Thirdly, as an equality right, and what I'll look here particularly is in relation to segregation. And 
at the very least, and this is the kind of discussion that is very common in development circles, value added of a human right is to provide accountability, transparency, and participation. So starting off with oh, um, the next thing which we need to look at is how complex the right is. The, um, it's usual to think of rights as either being civil and political or as being socioeconomic. But actually, the right to education, as we've seen, straddles both these boundaries. It can be seen as civil and political, the duty not to interfere, socioeconomic, the duty to protect and provide. But really, these, all these roles are intricately bound up so that it is a multiplier right. The right to freedom of speech and other rights cannot be appreciated and fully enjoyed unless the citizen is educated. So it really does reconfigure the boundaries between socioeconomic rights and civil and political rights in a deep and fundamental way. So to turn to education as a freedom right and particularly education as propaganda. And as a South African, having grown up under apartheid, I am, and I imagine the Oro is also, acutely aware of the power of the state in using education for propaganda. And the apartheid state used education shamelessly as a way of reinforcing the apartheid ideology. And these are pictures that you can see now from the 1976 student uprising in Soweto. And what's striking about these uprisings, which were students taking, which were students demonstrating in relation to the right to education, what is striking is that they were not triggered by the desperately poor education provision, the poor buildings, the lack of teachers. They were protesting about the imposition of an ideology through the imposition of Afrikaans. And you can see from these pictures that the banners say down with Bas education, Bas is master, um, do not want Afrikaans. They didn't want the imposition of what was then Afrikaans, the language of dominance, into their schools. So really they were protesting about education as a freedom right. And we can compare that with education as a positive right to, to freedom. Um, and Nelson Mandela, many years down the line, saying that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And this might explain why, when you look at some of the international covenants, of um, particularly of civil and political rights, both regional and international, you find that education is primarily framed as a duty not to interfere. This is the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which says the state should not interfere in the parents' choice of religion of instruction. The International Covenant of Economic, Social and Cultural Rights goes a bit further and talks about religious and moral education. And the European Convention of Human Rights talks about states shall respect the right of parents in relation both to religion and political convictions. This raises um, our second poll, which I think might be more contentious than the first one, which is if we say that the state 
should respect the religious convictions um, of learners and their parents, does that mean that the state should provide faith schools um, as an alternative to mainstream schools which the state might be using to pursue its own agenda? And this brings us to our second poll. And again, we'd, be very, we'd very welcome your views. The question here is whether the, the right to education, whether we should conceive of the right to education to require the state to fund faith schools. That is, schools which are for learners of a particular religion and are formulated around religious curricula. So here we've got three options again. The first option is that the right to education requires the state to fund faith schools. And if you think, if you agree with that, can you send in 2A, either tweet, send an email or Facebook. If you think the state must permit state schools, but doesn't need to fund it, that is to give it equal credibility, uh, it's exams are equally recognized, but it doesn't provide funding. If you think that, tweet message to be. And you might think, not at all, that the best way for educational freedom is if the state prohibits all faith schools and instead incorporates religious freedom into mainstream schools. So while you're doing that, um, if you we could take a poll of our live audience so from our live audience, if you think that the right to education requires the state to fund faith schools, can you raise your hands? If you think that the state should permit faith schools but not fund them, can you raise your hands? And if you think the state should prohibit all faith schools, this is option 2C, can you raise your hands? Okay, so while we're collating this, you might be interested to know what the European Court of Human Rights has said about this issue. And the European Court of Human Rights has decided about this issue not in relation to religion, but in relation to language disputes. And you can see from this picture that this can be equally hotly contested, as in Belgium, where even the, the road signs were defaced for being in the wrong language. This came up as one of the early cases under the in the European Court of Human Rights called Belgian Linguistics, where French-speaking parents living in the Flemish area wanted their children educated in French. And again, there were two questions. The one question was whether they were permitted to establish their own schools at their own expense in French, even though the state schools in that area were in Dutch. Secondly, whether the state should actually fund those schools or whether they were prohibited altogether. And the European Court of Human Rights looked very closely at the text of the European Convention, where, which says, no person shall be denied the right to education. This is formulated in a negative sense that the state should not interfere. Um, and because it's a negative formulation, the court came up with the view that there was no duty to establish or subsidize education of any particular type, and therefore there was a duty to permit faith schools, but not to fund them. And in the light of that, 
we've now got some responses to the poll, and we can see how many of you would have agreed with this result and well, not. Well, I can tell you that um, from our domestic audience, we have, um, for the question 2A, we have one person in support, and in our webinar audience, we had 20 people in support, which gives us a 30% support rate. For question 2B, we had nine uh, participants in the room in support of the proposition, and in the webinar audience, we had 70 people in support of that, with a 60% return rate. Um, on question 2C, we had two people in support in the room, and 10 people in our webinar audience in support of that, which gives us a 10%. So it looks like we have a strong majority in favour of Proposition 2B. That is that the state must permit faith schools, but no requirement of state funding, which is interesting because that's broadly the same result as the European Court of Human Rights mm. achieved. Okay, so now we've looked at equality as a freedom right, we go, uh, sorry, at education as a freedom right, we're now going to turn and look at education as a social right. And this raises some difficult challenges because unlike the duty not to interfere, there may well be resource implications of this. We could start by looking at the International Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights because this is a widely agreed uh, convention which has been ratified by 162 states and this arguably sets the universal standard which says that primary education should be compulsory and available free to all and secondary education should be available free but only progressively subject to state resources. What we're going to look at now are some of the main challenges that this social duty or the duty to provide raises. First of all, can we say that a human right to education gives us a right to buildings, furniture and teachers and at what standard? Again, something that might be thought to be a policy issue. Secondly, do we say there's a human right to quality education and if it's quality education, can a court set the standards of quality? Sorry. Um, thirdly, should it be compulsory and available free to all? And we'll talk more about to what extent it should be free. And all through this, we're looking at the role of courts in resource decisions. So let's start by looking at a human right to buildings, furniture and teachers. And this takes us back to South Africa, rolling forward to the post-apartheid era, in fact, the current situation. And these pictures that you can see are of schools in the Eastern Cape, which were built by parents out of mud. The, the picture on the left shows children sitting on the floor because of lack of furniture. And the picture on the right shows learners sitting outside because of lack of proper buildings. This has been the focus of a long-running litigation by the Legal Resources Centre in the Eastern Cape, which has centred on the question of to what extent the right to education brings with it the right to buildings, furniture and teachers. And although most of the cases have not reached judgment but have been settled, there has recently, 
um, at the end of last year been a very important judgment in the High Court of the Eastern Cape in 2014, which made it very clear that the respondents, which was the province, were in breach of the right to basic education by failing to provide adequate furniture. So adequate furniture is seen as central to the right to education. And not only that, it ordered the province to ensure that all schools identified as having furniture shortages would receive adequate furniture, and it said what adequate meant to enable each child to have his or her own reading and writing space. So the court went straight into a central resource issue and was prepared to say this is the standard that is required. The second question, the second challenge is we might talk about the right to education, but can we talk about the right to quality education? And here we ask whether a court can adjudicate minimum standards of education. Slightly different from a resource question, it's about quality of education, but obviously brings in resources as well. And this time we go to New York State to see what kind of response that has been. New York State, unlike the federal constitution of the USA, has got a right to education in its state constitution. Um, and litigation was brought for inner city schools saying that they had not been given enough resource to provide quality education. And interestingly, the court, having to set a standard of what the basic quality of education, what the minimum standard should be, linked it to civic participation and the ballot box. So it said that schools, to fulfill the right to education, had to fulfill the right to minimum standards of education, which included basic literacy, calculating, and verbal skills, which were necessary to enable children to eventually function productively as civic participants, capable of voting and serving on a jury. And it also said that quality of education brought with it the need for capital, for buildings, minimally adequate physical facilities, and teaching by adequately trained teachers. So this was a case which covered both quality of education and the previous point about rights to buildings. Um, now, of course, we always ask as lawyers and as policymakers, and however we are involved, perhaps through NGOs, about what the role of the court should be and how legitimate the courts are and whether the courts are competent in setting such standards. The New York State Court was quite clear that um, in enacting a budget, the resource should follow the standard. So in enacting a budget, the state should appropriate the constitutionally required funding. So we've now looked at a social right. We've looked at the right to basic education as bringing with it the right to certain minimum facilities like furniture and classrooms and certain minimum standards of quality. Which brings us to our, our third big question, and again, we would like your ideas about this, which is whether it should be free. Um, and here we ask whether free compulsory education means it should be free for everyone, or should it only be free for those who are disadvantaged, where the disadvantage is means tested? 
Alternatively, we could expect all learners to pay fees and um, that's how education could work. So here we are again, we would like you to send in your responses, tweet, send, email us or Facebook us. You can see the address for those of you who are late joining at the bottom of the slide. If you think that um, education should be free for all, say 3A, message us with 3A. If you think it should be free only for the disadvantaged, thinking about it as means testing so that those who are well off can pay for themselves and all the money can then go to subsidizing the poorest, tweet, message us 3B. And if you think that all learners should pay fees, message us with 3C. And again, while you're sending us our messages, we'll take a poll from the live audience. So those of you who think that the right to education should be free for all, 3A, can you raise your hands? Those of you who think it should be free only for the disadvantaged, can you raise your hands? And those of you who think all learners should pay fees, can you raise your hands? So while we're collating the responses, you may be interested in, again, comparing the New York State Constitution with the South African Constitution. The New York State Constitution, as you can see highlighted, says that the legislature shall provide for the maintenance and support of a system of free common schools, wherein all the children of the state may be educated. Whereas the South African Constitution talks about everyone having the right to basic education but says nothing about whether it should be free or not. And in fact the decision has been made, the second option has been chosen in South Africa which is um, even state schools are fee paying but that there are uh, exemptions for learners who are poor as defined through means testing and there are also some fee-free schools in the lowest decile. So having looked at that, we are in a position now to give you the response to our poll. So I can tell you for, um, in the response to question 3A, should education be free for all, we have in our local audience 10 people in support of that. And in our webinar audience, we have a hundred percent response. One person. Oh no no no! Sorry, correct that. We one have person B. we have uh, one, okay. So we we have a ninety nine point something percent response in favour of the the proposition that education should be free for all. On question three B, should education be free only for the disadvantaged? In other words, should education be means tested? We have a local response of two people in support of that and one person in the webinar audience in support of that and no one is in support of Proposition 3C that all learners should pay fees. So that's again a very interesting response because it shows that in some senses the South African position is an outlier. It has some support amongst our global and, and local audience but the majority seem to say that the right to education should mean free for all. In the light of that, the experience in Colombia is, is of great interest uh, because it asks the question of whether if the state policy is not to provide free compulsory education, we can achieve it through the courts. Um, and until 2010, 
Colombia was the only Latin American country permitting local governments to charge for primary education in public schools. This was litigated by a consortium of public interest lawyers, both in Colombia and elsewhere. And in a landmark decision on the 31st of May 2010, the Colombian Constitutional Court held that all public primary schools must cease charging students tuition fees. What was particularly important, as in the Indian example, was that this was followed up by a change in the law. The Colombian national government, a year later, issued legislation not only establishing free education at the primary level, but also at the secondary level, and even more so for those who might be wanting to litigate this worldwide, the Article 2 of the decree says that free education includes not charging for complementary services. And we could, you could think about what complementary services mean, but we could ask whether it meant indirect costs such as books and uniforms, which could be a deterrence to very to poor children, and even we might think about transport to school. Okay, so we've now looked at freedom, education as a freedom right and education as a social right. Obviously this is very brief and there's much more to be said about all these things. And now we're going to look again extremely briefly in the time left at education as an equality right. And I'm only going to focus for these purposes on race um, and particularly on the education and segregation issue. I'm not going to talk this in this webinar about disability, gender, sexual orientation, or any of the other equality grounds, because those would be a webcast in themselves. But just as a taste of what the equality issues could be when we're thinking about right to education, we could go back to the landmark decision of Brown versus Board of Education, where eventually the US Supreme Court was prepared to strike down schools which were segregated on grounds of race. And this wasn't at least explicitly about schools being inferior in terms of quality on grounds of race, but simply the very fact of segregation was said to generate a feeling of inferiority and therefore that was a breach of the US constitutional 14th amendment. Now this is still a very live issue and it's a live issue in Europe for the Roma population. As some of you will know, the, the Roma are the biggest ethnic minority in Europe and in recent years it's become clear that in many countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, Roma children have been segregated into what are called special schools or special classrooms on the ostensible um, pretext that they need, that they fall below the standard required or that they have special needs. And again, in a very, in a landmark decision in the European Court of Human Rights against the Czech Republic in 2007, the um, court held that segregation amounts to indirect discrimination against Roma children. And this is an ongoing issue and there are still many public interest groups in Eastern Europe who are litigating this issue. Um, and it's very likely, you can watch the space, to come up as a, a, 
an issue before the European Court of Justice as well under European law. So as I say, that's just a brief taste of equality as a, of education as an equality right. And there's a lot more to be said about other grounds, which I'm not going to go into. But where I'd like to finish is thinking about some of the potential problems of regarding, uh, of taking a human rights approach to education. And one of them could be that even in the face of progressive policies by a state in the, in the context of education, we might get human rights challenges of such policies. And we've seen that, in other words, we might get um, freedom rights set up as challenging social rights. And we've seen that very recently in a case in India in the Supreme Court, which was a challenge to Indian legislation, recent legislation, which required 25% of places at unaided private schools to be put aside for disadvantaged learners, where the state just subsidized, gave the school what it would have used in subsidy if they had gone to public schools. The educational institutions challenged this as a breach of their, one of their freedom rights, the right to freedom of occupation, and they claimed that this was a breach of their freedom to establish and administer educational institutions. The court, in a case in 2012, upheld the law. In other words, it rejected the challenge and said that the law could be upheld. And why this is of particular interest to us is because the court's understanding of the right to education made it possible for it to give much greater weight to the right to education, in this case, than the right to freedom of occupation. And it did this by saying that a child denied the right to access to education is not only deprived of the right to live with dignity, but also deprived of the right to freedom of expression and speech. The aim of the legislation was to remove all barriers which a child belonging to the weaker section and disadvantaged group has to face. And therefore, because of the weight, because of the understanding that the court had of the right to education, it decided that this law was a reasonable restriction on freedom of occupation. So that brings us to, to the end of this very brief discussion. You'll see that we've talked from the beginning about whether education should be a human right or policy goal. There was a general consensus among both the live and the external audience that there was added value to education as a human right. So we then explored further the shape and the content of the right, looking at it from the angle of freedom as a freedom right, a social right, and an equality right, all along bearing in mind that if we are bringing in education as a human right, we need to think about the role of courts and litigation. And that brings us to the end of the former presentation, and I'll hand over to Leora to talk about questions. Thank you very much, um, Sandy, and thank you to all of you who are participating with us. Um, I wanted to say we've received um, quite a few questions from our webinar audience. Um, I would like to encourage you out there to send us more questions um, 
over the next few minutes or five minutes so that we can respond to them as we go through. And of course to encourage anyone in the room, if they have a particular question, to send that to us um, as quickly as possible to ask that now. But let's start with uh, one of the first questions that came from Nairobi in Kenya. Um, and that question, um, Sandy, was um, how can we assess inequalities on socioeconomic grounds with regard to the right to education? How can we assess inequalities on socioeconomic grounds with regard to the right to education? Well, thank you very much for, for that question from our questioner in Nairobi. Um, Obviously, it's always challenging to assess inequality on socioeconomic grounds. And that's why we looked at the question of whether we can use the right to education to set a standard. And once we know what the standard is, everyone who falls below that standard would, not, would be treated in an unequal manner. That's the, socio uh, the socioeconomic grounds inequality. We may actually also find that socioeconomic inequality matches with other grounds of inequality, such as gender or disability, etc. And then we, we need to see whether there is an equal right to access for those groups as well. But probably what we need to do is, as a start, to set a benchmark standard and then ask how far below and whether who falls below that standard in order to assess inequality. Okay, thank you. Can I ask the audience here whether there are any questions that they may like to pose while we field more questions from the webinar audience? Right, well, we have one question here from, um, from Oxford, from Shreya, um, and that is, does the right to education as a multiplier right also include other rights like the right to food? Does the right to education as a multiplier right also include other rights like the right to food? Well, thank you, Shreya, for that, that very important question because, as you know yourself, there's been some very important developments in India in relation to the relationship between the right to education and the right to food. Actually, in India, the litigation went in the other direction it started with litigation around the right to food and had some important implications for the right to education in that the court held that the right to food included the provision of cooked meals at school and because there were cooked meals at school this attracted many more learners and especially attracted families to send their girl children to school. Um, so the right to food could be the primary one which then triggers more intervention on the right to education but also as a multiplier right the right to education um, needs to be sure that those who who are experiencing the education can really make the best of it and if you come hungry to school if you've walked a very long distance which many children in many parts of the world still do then unless you see education as including these extra, these, not extra, these preconditions such as the right to food, um, you are not going to really achieve what you want to achieve through education. Okay, thank you. I'm now going to pass on to a question that's just come in from 
um, Megan Haggerty, which is the coordinator of the International Education Funders Group. Um, and the question is, how does the right to education play out in terms of responsibility of the global community? For example, some low-income countries struggle to pay for basic primary education despite allocating more than 20% of the bu government budget to education. Does the global community then have a responsibility to meet this right, or is it just the state? Well, thank you very much, Megan, for that, that question, um, which is an extremely important question, particularly because it straddles what we've been saying about Millennium Development Goals and Rights. Um, taking it from a rights perspective, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights also includes a duty to cooperate. And if a state is not able to fulfill its duty to provide education or other economic and social cultural rights to its own population, it, um, it should be asking or it should be invoking the duty of cooperation which would require it to um, uh, obtain assistance from other countries. What is still to be explored is to what extent we can hold other states legally bound to fulfill the duty of cooperation from their perspective. And that's where it's important for us to bring the Millennium Development Goals strategy together with the human rights approach so that it's not just a question of um, benevolence on the part of developed states, but a question of a legally binding obligation to ensure that governments such as the ones you talk about are able to fulfill their duties. Thank you. That's, that's connected to another question that's come in from Chanel van den Berg. Um, and this relates, um, Chanel is from the Socioeconomic Rights and Administrative Justice Research Group at the Faculty of Law in the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. The qu her question is, if education is free for all, can this lead to levelling down? Conversely, does cross-subsidised education lead to inequality? So, um, the question is, if education is free for all, does it lead to levelling down? Um, in other words, what I think the thrust of this question is, do we have to say that in the interest of equality, equality, we sacrifice quality so that if everybody has a place at school, then it can be, we've spread our resources so much that we sacrifice quality. Um, Again, that's why the, the discussion we had earlier about whether a court can set standards for quality education is important. The right to education doesn't need to be seen simply as walking through the door or even enrollment as the, as the Millennium Development Goals do, but as actually providing quality of education which can give, build the capabilities of the learners. And so I think to say that free-for-all means levelling down um, should not be what we accept under a human rights approach. It should be the right to education has to provide education at a particular standard and the right to education wouldn't be fulfilled unless that was the case. And that means that resources have to follow the standards which are set 
and the state should be able to provide through its general taxation rather than through individual parental fees the kind of standards which the, the basic right to education requires. Can you repeat the conversely question? Um, yes, I can. So conversely, does cross-subsidized education lead to inequality? So this is a difficult one, and I think this is something which has to be answered very much in the context of individual countries and how the budgets of individual countries work. Um, the human rights approach has to be contextualized, and in the end, as once we have our minimum standards and the kind of standards which we think human rights should deliver, then the way in which budgetary decisions are made need to be tested against that. Okay. Now I have some questions from uh, Sylvain Aubrey, um, and I'm going to choose the second question. Um, if liberty of parents to choose education leads to segregation, can it be a legitimate motive for limiting it? So if liberty of parents to choose education leads to segregation, can it be a legitimate motive for limiting it? I thought that was an interesting question. Yeah, well, thank you very much. That is an extremely interesting question because it pits two aspects of the right to education against each other. It pits the freedom part of the right, that is freedom to choose to educate your children in terms of your religious or moral or political beliefs against the equality aim of preventing segregation on illegitimate grounds. Um, and I think the, the answer would be that yes, it sh could be legitimate because as we saw in the final case where the court was able to balance the human right to education against the freedom right to our freedom of occupation, the court should be able to, by using a proportionality analysis, balance the right of liberty of parents to educate in the religious convictions of their children, of themselves, against the importance that everyone be treated equally. Now I think if you're talking about segregation as racial segregation, then the freedom right doesn't include the liberty of parents to choose racial segregation and it um, would not extend to undermining the basis of the Brown decision. But it might lead to the some kind of um, need to weigh up religious freedom as against the right for integration as between religions. And that is a difficult topic which, again, would need to be thought through and developed within a local context. Um, and so on that question of parents' choice um, and the question of segregation, we have a question from Lima, from Renato Constantino, um, which is on the question of disability. And I know that you won't be covering disability, but it does connect to the general themes. Could parents oppose inclusive education regarding children with disabilities, or is that segregation? Um, yes, well, thank you, Renato. So again, we have um, a co complex conflict. Um, the question is why parents oppose inclusive education and which parents would oppose that. Um, the freedom of, of parents to educate their children according to their religious, moral or political beliefs would not include the freedom to discriminate. So it would not include the freedom to discriminate on unlawful grounds such as race or disability. 
segregation would fall within that. So um, the right to education of the children with disabilities and the right to education to the right to equal education would be the strong right. Um, parents who oppose that would not n really be able to use their freedom right because it's, uh, it would count as uh, prohibited grounds and probably discriminatory. Okay. Um, now we have a few more minutes left and, and I wanted to, um, on that point, then follow up with Renata's second question, which is can parents oppose compulsory education and how does that apply to living in voluntary isolation? So again, this comes back to the sort of power of parents to reject the, what's on offer. Okay, and, and thank you again for that, that question. Um, what you've put your finger on is the question of compulsory education and to what extent compulsory education can itself be seen as infringement of freedom. The first question we ask for this is whose freedom is it? Is it the parents' freedom or is it the children's freedom? And if it's the parents choosing for their children, we need to ask to what extent the voice of the children themselves is heard. Um, so compulsory education is really the state saying that it needs to make the choice on behalf of the children and that parents' choice of how to, uh, in relation to their children, is limited to that extent. And that's because of a background understanding that education is crucial for the development of children and for their future participation in society. Um, obviously, stay in, in some places, states have exemptions for homeschooling, but that's still compulsory education as long because the students, the, the pupils have to be educated. So I think the answer to that would be that compulsory, the compulsory nature is to make sure that everyone fully uh, enjoys their right to education, but there need to be all kinds of safeguards in the kind of education that's delivered so that we don't run into what we've talked about in terms of education as propaganda or education as running roughshod over the beliefs, religious, moral or political, of the parents and their communities. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Um, we have one from Ian McPherson here um, saying, do schools charging fees breach education as a social right and the duty of the state to provide? So does the very offer of a private school, which is fee charging, do something to the right to education? What is that relationship? Well, thank you, Ian, for, for that, that difficult question, particularly in the light of the fact that um, more and more, there, there's more and more of an industry in the supply of private schools, not just for better off, learners but also for poorer learners. Um, the answer would be again that we could look back at the Indian case about how to balance freedom of occupation against the right of education and the freedom to set up private schools which are fee charging would not seem in itself to breach the right to education of other children unless um, in some ways it infringes on the state's ability to provide free and compulsory education of an adequate standard to everyone. Um, the, the ability to charge fees for those who could afford 
would not in itself be a breach unless, of course, um, it would be limiting other children or other learners' rights to a decent quality of education. And that would need to be decided in terms of the budgetary allocation, the extent to which private schools are actually subsidised by the state and other factors such as that. Okay, thank you very much, Sandy. I think we have now run out of time, although there are a few questions which we will try to respond um, through our written form fora. Um, and thank you to everybody for participating today, and thank you particularly to Professor Fredman for that excellent presentation. So um, we'll say goodbye from Oxford.